Hi, welcome to War Stories from the Womb. I'm your host, Paulette Kamenica. I'm an economist and a writer and the mother of two girls. In today's episode, my guest's challenge is with miscarriage. She has two miscarriages, both at the end of the first trimester, and then uses IVF, despite the fact that getting pregnant isn't the issue, and gets pregnant, and has another miscarriage. Eventually, she becomes the mother of two girls, but that's later in her story. She's a writer, and in one of her pieces about this topic, called On Fertility, in the Toast, she writes, When you give birth, you do it with others. When you miscarry, you do it alone. Even if doctors and nurses are present, numbing you, holding your hand, giving gentle instructions, they're not with you because what's happening is both too awful and too common to be shared. Nobody wants co-ownership of the failed human. Many don't even consider it human. Even if your father is driving you to the hospital in his buttery yellow Lincoln, or even if your mother is riding in the ambulance with you, or even if your husband and sister are outside the procedure room waiting, you're still alone. There was a person being cluster of cells that was alive inside you, and now it's not. I'll stop reading there and you can hear my guest describe the rest of her experience. Our conversation is broken into two parts. In this first part, I also spoke with a doctor whose specialty is recurrent miscarriage, and he shares insights from his own research and experience. Let's get to this inspiring story. Hi, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you introduce yourself and tell us where you're from? Uh, my name is Eileen Favorite, and I'm from Chicago, Illinois. Nice. Excellent. So Eileen, we're going to talk about the family that you have created, but sometimes the family you created is a reflection in some ways of the family you came from. So I'm just wondering, did you grow up with siblings? Did you know you wanted to have a family? What, what, what's your background like in those, in those respects? I grew up with siblings. I grew up with eight siblings. Wow. <laughs> I'm the number eight of nine. Wow. So yes, I always anticipated that I would have children and I have two girls. Wow. That's amazing. Eight of nine is amazing. Mm -hmm. So I'm imagining you all are pretty close in age. Yes. My mother had the first four in four years. And then I don't know, every, after that, every two years. So there were nine of us born in 13 years. Wow. Yeah. God, that's like an amazing accomplishment to be, to be honest. Wow. <laughs> so we all know that's hard work, that the having of the children. Right. So she, my mother was 24 when she had her first and 37 when she had her last. Wow. Okay. So that led to you thinking you definitely wanted a family. Did you want a large family? No. <laughs> okay. Okay. Probably also related, right? To your experience. More just, you know, the financial realities of a huge family yeah. uh, definitely shifted over time. You know, it was much, everything was a little bit cheaper when my parents were coming up, right? Home ownership, education, all of that good stuff. So I knew that for me, that would not be in the game, in the cards. So let's talk about your family then. Before you got pregnant, what did you imagine it would be like? Well, so I have five sisters. So I pretty much watched all my sisters have babies from the time I was 13. I had my first nephew. Wow. So I was always around kids, uh, little kids, big kids, you know, always. So I, I don't feel like I had any kind of illusions about it, having been an aunt so young and then having watched my sisters give, have babies and see their struggles and see their happiness. And so you didn't imagine that you were necessarily walking into some easy 
process? No, no, no. I knew what it was like. My first sister had her first baby when she was 21. So, you know, she was young. She got married young. She was young. I was, so I was babysitting at 14, you know, and she and her husband wanted to go out and party. It's, you know, so like I was watching pretty young babies from a, lo- a, a young age. Wow. That's good training, actually. <laughs> yeah. So was it easy to get pregnant the first time? Well, so, you know, my story is that it took me 10 years of infertility and miscarriages before I had a baby. So my, my, my first pregnancy was like, hey, let's try to get pregnant. And yeah, we got pregnant right away. But then I miscarried. So that was when I was 31. And then it was two years before I got pregnant again at 33. And then I miscarried again. And then I didn't get pregnant. All right, wait, let me, let me stop you right there for a second. So at this point, then now what's our view? I had one miscarriage and for the next pregnancy, I was, you know, on DEFCON 2 for the whole thing. Yeah. I'm wondering if you took it the same way or you thought this is a process and this is how it works. Oh, no, they were they were devastating for me. The miscarriages were really hard and really unexpected, too, because as you can hear, I come from this very fertile background. Um, My mother had nine children. She was one of 10 herself. Wow. And my grandmother was an Irish immigrant and she came from like a family of 10 in Ireland, you know? So like I come from this long line of hyper fertile women. Yeah. So I never expected it to be a problem for me. I took this question of genetics and fertility to an expert. Today, we're lucky to have Dr. William Coutte on the show. He's the director of Fertility Associates of Memphis and board certified in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Before we get into the specifics, Eileen's mother and grandmother are both from really large families, like 10 kids. Eileen herself is one of nine kids. And she was saying that she expected, because she comes from what she described as a hyper-fertile line, that she would have kids easily. And I'm wondering, is, is a hyper-fertile line a thing or is fertility has no basis in genetics or how do we think about that? Well, that's an interesting, that's an interesting point. Many people think that women with recurrent pregnancy loss like Eileen are super fertile, meaning that their problem is not they can't get pregnant, that they can easily get pregnant. But the, the issue is that is being studied intently is what's different about her than her mother or her other family. And we think the issue in many cases lies with the this concept of uterine receptivity, how receptive is the uterus to the the embryo, and uterine selectivity. So in a normal fertile uh, woman who's not having miscarriages, she has a selection mechanism, we believe, in the uterus that allows the uterus to discriminate between a normal embryo and an embryo that may be genetically abnormal. And if the embryo is genetically abnormal in the individual with what we would call normal reproductive potential, like her mother, then in most cases, we believe that that abnormal embryo would never attach to the uterus. She would not get pregnant. And next month, maybe a good embryo would come along and she would get pregnant. 
in the case of some women, I don't know about this individual here because this is all research and there's not a test I can draw blood or do a sample or whatever. We think that something about that selective mechanism of the uterus to discriminate between an abnormal and a normal embryo is altered in a way that the uterus no longer is capable or of doing as good a job at discerning, is this going to be a genetically normal or is this going to be an abnormal embryo? And it can't discern. So, you know, human reproduction is complicated. There's a lot of waste along the way. There's a lot of duplicity. There's a lot of excess. I mean, look at sperm. A man may have millions and millions of sperm and it takes one to fertilize that egg. The same thing with women. They have hundreds of thousands of eggs at birth and they may have two, three or four children typically. So the selectivity of the uterus in this individual that, that we would now say is super fertile, it can grab the embryo. Its ability to select out that embryo that's normal or abnormal is weak or underfunctioning or not, not working well. And therefore, the uterus holds on to embryos that normally would never have attached. There's another screening mechanism in a woman's reproductive system that looks at that embryo when it's a quarter of an inch or a half an inch in size at six, seven, eight, nine weeks when most miscarriages occur. And it somehow, we don't understand, somehow says, you know what, this one has this genetic problem or that genetic problem. And therefore, we're going to shut down all maternal support to this particular pregnancy. And we call that a miscarriage. So th this is in, in individuals like Eileen, this may be what was going on. She's still able to produce eggs. They're still able to get pregnant. They're still able to get to their uterus and attach and start growing. But that selective mechanism of which embryo implants and which embryo doesn't is somehow altered. So yeah, so it was really tough after the first one. And then, you know, I kind of got into that, you know, I think women who go through infertility, you go through this sort of like, let's try to get pregnant. And then all the kind of rigmarole of like sex on timing and, you know, temperatures and your legs up the wall and all of that stuff. And after a while that would get really of a strain, you know, on the marriage. So I would, we would sort of go through like, let's just stop trying, you know, with, with scare quotes, stop trying, you know, because it was sort of like, even that verb itself is this kind of action that, you know, it, it has an underlying sort of feeling of desperation about it. And so you kind of let it go. And then I got pregnant again in the middle of graduate school. Wow. <laughs> and then I miscarried again. So at that point I was, yeah, I was 33 in the summer between my MFA. I had gotten one year down and I was going into my second year. And then I miscarried over the summer. And then it was really five years before I got pregnant again. So after the second one, do doctors say, okay, if you've had two miscarriages, we need to look at X, Y, and Z? Nope. Okay. It, it's, it all falls under that. This is so common and it happens to lots of women and the percentages, whatever. I think the percentages are like 25% of pregnancies and in miscarriage. So and I didn't have tests 
to see, you know, the chromosomal test. Well, that to say my second miscarriage happened in Ireland. So, you know, it was, I was on vacation. So like, it really wasn't even discussed the idea of like doing a chromosome test. One thing about Eileen's case is that after she experienced her second miscarriage, there weren't any tests run to determine what was the issue. And she was basically told that it's common to miscarry. What's the current standard of care for recurrent miscarriage? The last dozen years or so, there's been a emphasis, particularly from our group and others, that when a woman has a miscarriage, whether she passes it at home, whether she has medically induced passage of that tissue or surgically collected, that it should be sent for genetic testing. And the reason is not necessarily that it's going to change any medical treatment that we do. It changes the way we think about that miscarriage. And hopefully the way that that individual patient and her partner think about that miscarriage. In one of your papers, you described all the things that can contribute to miscarriage. Does the testing involve the genetic testing of the products of the miscarriage or it's everything? No society has been recommending that. I have heard that the American Society of Reproductive Medicine is revising their guidelines. And in medicine, it may take eight to 10 years before changes impact the care. In the interim, we have to do what we think is reasonable to care for our patients. I think one of the papers I sent you showed a study that we did, a prospective study on over 100 patients, where we did all the guideline tests and we did the test on the miscarriage. And we we tried to figure out what's the most cost-effective and what's the most beneficial and what will give us the most answers. And when you add that genetic testing on the miscarriage to the standard recommended guidelines that are in effect now, we can give an answer to about 90% of people. There's no more of this, oh, sorry, you had bad luck kind of thing. We don't understand what's going on. You can give them a pretty good idea of what's happened. Doesn't mean we always can fix it. But at least we can say what it is we're dealing with and what our chances are in the future. Then five years went by without getting pregnant again. And I decided to try fertility treatments. So I, and I I went through, I went through a round of IVF. I got pregnant (laughs) and then I miscarried again. So. And did the miscarriages happen at the same point? Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much like around nine, somewhere between the nine to 11 weeks point, always in the first trimester, which tends to be a chromosomal issue. Right. Okay. So on this, on the third one, I said, look, I want to test, you know, I want to see what went wrong. And so sure enough, there was, uh, it was trisomy 16. So there Uh was an extra chromosome on the allele or whatever it's called. So that was sort of comforting knowing that's what it was, because I think for a lot of women, when you experience miscarriage, and I don't know if you had this feeling, Paulette, but you know, there's a lot of like self-blame, like, what did I do wrong? Did I, did I drink coffee? Did I, you know, have too much stress? Did I, you know, like, and then you realize that, like, that really helped me realize, like, the problem happened at conception, you know, like really, really small kind of microscopic level when uh, you have absolutely no control. And, and that, that sort of really helped. If you do have this uh, genetic issue, the wrong number of chromosomes or, or something like that, there's anything you can do for that? Or that's just, that's chance. For the most time it's chance. So under special microscopic 
visualization, you can actually see in the egg, the chromosomes line up, two chromosome ones, two chromosome two, chromosome, and they're pulled apart. In that mechanism, there are these things called spindle fibers. Yeah. yeah. And they're supposed to pull, okay, chromosome one, chromosome one, chromosome two. Sometimes two chromosomes get pulled to one side and no chromosomes get pulled to the other. And if those two stay in the egg, then you've got a trisome. If the egg is the side where none got pulled, you've got a monosome. You've only got one chromosome 18. And these errors are in meiosis when the egg splits. They are much more common in a 40-year-old than in a 30-year-old. And, and part of it is due to the age of the eggs. And yeah. you know, women don't make more eggs. They got all the eggs they had at birth. Yep. And producing sperm, you know, all the time. Yeah, I think the truth of it is, for the most part, we don't have much control at all over any of the pregnancy. So the idea that it's your fault, I think, is based in this belief that I could have done something different because I control this process in my body when really you're not controlling any of it, right? No, you know, and it was really funny because when I got pregnant <laughs> again, and I, I want to try to talk a little bit about space between, so I had, I had another miscarriage. I was 38. And I think by the time I turned 40, I was like ready to accept, like, I'm not going to be a mother, you know, like this is not in the cards for me. I made my peace with that. And I think it's really, I want to be really careful when I talk about something like that, because I feel like a lot of women who miscarry get told, you just need to relax, you know, you just oh need to God. let go, yeah. right? And then you'll get pregnant. And, and again, this idea of control around it, yeah. right? And, and also like a sort of faulting the mother for being too anxious or something to get pregnant, you know? Yeah, so, like it's, you, it's your anxiety that's stopping it, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I really want to, I really want to like express that, like I did deeply let go. But I don't want to prescribe that as right. a path toward fertility, because I think that's really a dangerous thing to say to any woman. And like, I don't want anyone to like say that, but I, I can say that like in myself, I had reconciled it. You know, it was 10 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 10 years of trying to get pregnant. It was like, I'm kind of done with this thing that's just not working. You know, and the, and the whole process is stressful. We had a lot of trouble getting pregnant. And I, I remember like once the sex becomes work, yeah, work, you've stripped away kind of the fun and it, and it's now it's just stressful. You're in it for an outcome. And that's, that kind of takes some of the joy out of it for sure. Right. right. And so like, I just, I'm a yogi. So I've been practicing yoga for a long time. And so like, I really I really saw that like mind body connection and I really believe in that mind body connection at the same time. I don't want to say that like, that's something you can just will yourself to have. Like yeah. it has to be a deep, deep conversion within the self and no one should tell anybody else just let go, you know, yeah, but yeah. I will say that I did deeply let go when I turned 40 and I was just like, that's okay. I'm going to be able to do other things with my life. Yada, yada. And that's when I got pregnant. <laughs> and so what was really interesting was during that first trimester. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a professor. So I was teaching one night. I was, you know, very early in the pregnancy, maybe about 10, 11 weeks. And I went to the bathroom on the break and I was bleeding. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I'll tell you what's also funny at the same time. My sister was pregnant. My sister is two years older than I am. 
and so she was, she was even older than I was. She was 42. I was 40, maybe I was 41. She's 43. And she was six months pregnant. And when I told her that I was pregnant, I said, okay, let's just get ready because I'm going to miscarry when you have your baby. So let's just, let's just get ready for that. You know, <laughs> like, let's just, and she was like, oh, whatever you need to say, sister, you know, whatever, get, you know, whatever, whatever makes you feel. Bad. I'm like, yep. So let's just say that's going to happen. And so I called her that night and I said, I'm spotting. And she was like, okay. And I said, this is totally out of my hands. Yeah. Either there's the right number of chromosomes or there isn't. Right. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And, and I really, I really believed that finally, you know, I really believe like this is completely out of my hands. If this is going wrong, it's nothing I did. It happened 11 weeks ago when sperm met egg and that's all we have to do. So I went the next morning, I went to see my doctor and we, I'm going to start crying. <laughs> and he gives me the old ultrasound wand, you know, as I had been through so many, you know, three really horrible ultrasound. And he was like, we've got a heartbeat. And I could not believe it. You know, I was like, and he goes, and if we've got a heartbeat this strong at this point, it's probably going to work. Wow. Oh my <laughs> yeah. God. Oh my God. But one thing I want to say about the miscarriages, which are super painful, kind of amazing that your body can distinguish what's going to work from what's not going to work, right? You, you don't have control over it, but your chemistry is saying, oh, this, this egg and sperm combination will not develop into a person. Yeah. So, and, that, and that in itself is like a unbelievably cool wisdom that you can't control. No, you can't control it, you know? I mean, when I miscarried, I was doing a lot of computer programming at the time. And so that's the way I thought of it is, I mean, I I understood it as my body essentially responding to the embryo like a computer code with a mistake in it. It was saying, what you're asking this code to do won't work. And the program just stops. And that felt so familiar. But the code is wildly complicated. I love it. (laughs) And so like that helped me get through it. You're articulating something I think that's really important for people to remember is that every woman's going to encounter this experience in a different way. And they're yep. going to find comfort in all these different ways, yep. you know, and some people, they might find it like, well, it was God's will, or it might be something else, you know, yeah. it might be, well, data error, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. like not the right chromosome number, you know, whatever, but like, we have to make space for like all yep. those different, responses and like give voice to them. Yeah. Because the culture hates to talk about miscarriage and, and people said the wrong thing to me because they didn't know what to say. Yeah. 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 I think people don't know what to do with those sad feelings. Right. Or, or how to talk about loss. And for sure I was upset and disappointed, but in our, you know, singular journey, Mm -hmm. it was a big deal to have gotten pregnant. And so we kind of held on to that. Yeah. And I think for me, it was kind of weird too, because I, I had, didn't have any problem getting pregnant. It was yep. staying pregnant. So I, I resisted like fertility tr- treatments for a long time because of that. And then when I turned 38, I was like, all right, I better at least try this IVF. Cause I don't want to look back and regret it. Yeah. And then after I miscarried after one IVF round, which is horrible. I think, it, I think that was worse. You know what I mean? Because you go through all the needles and the 
shots and the, yeah. the shots and the all the stuff and like the fertility doctor was just like rooting for me you know yeah, what I mean yeah yeah <laughs> and then and then I went through another round and I didn't get pregnant and I think that maybe contributed to just being like okay wow. you know what I mean like I I think I in my head I said look I'd rather never be pregnant again than go through another miscarriage yeah, yeah. You know? there's just it's so much more complicated than we are willing to admit or think about. I was was speaking with a friend of mine who just had a miscarriage a couple months ago. And she was just like, it's really hard to get pregnant. You know, she's like, there's only like this really small window every month. You know, the timing has to be just perfect. Yeah. I was like, I know it is really small when you start breaking it down and trying. Yeah. It's just, it's kind of a miracle that any of it happens, you know, we're all walking around. Yep. I agree. Luck has such a huge, it's such a huge player in the whole process. Yeah. I feel, yeah. I mean, that was kind of what I came down to in the end. I just sort of went, you know what? I've just, I just had bad luck. Like, you know, like up until that point, I was like, I'm just on the bad side of the, of the odds. Yeah. 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 Like bearing the brunt of the odds for all the women, you know, like, cause I'm very, you know, like I'm, I'm like, Oh, for three. And you know, that's, I, I'm not going to do the math right, but you're, you know what I'm saying? If it's yes. 25% yeah. are, are uh, miscarriages, then I'm, I'm, I'm miscarrying more, I'm carrying my share. So do we have real statistics on how common miscarriages? Uh, recurrent miscarriage, yes. So it's a hard study to do. We did a study when I was in Dallas at Parkland Hospital. It's a non-referred population. Patient demographics are roughly a third Hispanic, a third Caucasian, a third African-American. And we, at that time, there were 15 or 16,000 deliveries performed in that hospital every year. Now it's much more. And we went through the database and found how many women had been diagnosed with recurrent miscarriage when they presented to the hospital. And it was about 1.5%. Now, that has to be an underestimate because everybody might not have come back to that same facility for follow-up. Yep. They yep. Weren't, there are a number of indigent patients that were sent to that hospital because there was nowhere else for them to go. But I say that's the baseline. Now, if you look at all the other types of studies in the literature, it's probably 2 3 or 4% of all reproductive age couples will experience recurrent miscarriage. Your patient, for example, lived and had her pregnancies at a time when the standard society definitions for miscarriage were probably three or more consecutive losses. And this is when I started my training. That's what I was taught. This is recurrent miscarriage. I have to have three documented losses. Some people said with the same partner. Some people said in a row. So if you had a baby, or that doesn't count. And we were supposed to see this patient after two losses. And say, oh, I'm sorry, just go get pregnant again. Uh, <laughs> this is normal. But then I did get pregnant. And yeah. So you, pa- you passed that 10 week mark and you have the heartbeat. And then what's that pregnancy like? It was great. I had a really easy pregnancy. That's I don't awesome. have any, yeah, I mean, no, no, really very little morning sickness. No, I never, I never, had, I didn't have any morning sickness. Maybe a little nausea, fatigue you know, no big weight gain, no, nothing. I mean, it was perfect. You know, <laughs> it was super easy. What were you imagining for your birth? What, what were you hoping hey, so, for? 
my second marriage carriage was in Ireland. And so if you read the essay that I wrote about it on fertility, which was published in the toast, it kind of goes into the blow by blow of that miscarriage, but it was pretty traumatic. And I went into late, basically a mini labor. That's what they called it in Ireland, a mini labor where I was expelling the aborting the fetus. And like, it was, it was brutal, but I'm a writer. So like, as I was going through that, I told myself, I'm going to remember how this feels. And I remember it, that it was like this, I'd have this like pounding in my back and then just, you know, a flood of tissue. When I went into labor, so two things, I went through initial childbirth classes and the regular childbirth class. And uh, because I had to, right. So I gave birth at Northwestern, Brentis Women's Hospital at Northwestern. And so before you could do natural childbirth class, you had to do traditional childbirth class. So <laughs> I was in that and the whole traditional childbirth class was about epidurals. Yeah. And when you get them and what, you know, and Pitocin. And I was kind of like, okay, wait a second. You're telling me that when I get an epidural, I can't eat, I can't walk around and I won't feel my leg. I'm thinking how am I supposed to give birth if I can't feel my legs? Yeah. I can't feel my body below the waist. How do you possibly give birth? So that, that was my logic. I know. And I know some women love epidurals. So like no, no judgment, but like in my logical Virgo brain, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Right. So then I did the national childbirth class and they said, the best thing you can do is come to the hospital as late as possible. <laughs> so, and the other thing that I did through my yoga studio was I found an incredible doula. So when I went into labor, I called my doula, whose name was Dory. And, you know, she came to the house and she was also a massage therapist. So like for every contraction, I got a massage. After. Oh my God. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So it was just like, and what I was noticing, it was that stab in the back feeling that I knew. Yeah. Right? And that I had already survived. Yeah. And in my brain, I'm thinking, if I can get that stab in the back and actually get a baby out of this, no problem. Yeah. You know, so I think like for me, compared to most women going into labor, there was that pain fear factor was not as strong because I had been through that other experience with the kind of the catastrophic result of no baby. Yeah. So I just really, in my brain, I was just like, you know what, I can, I can take any of this if I get a baby at the end. So Dory came and it was like, okay, I think and we're, I'm, I'm writing down the, you know, the difference, the timing of the contractions, how many, how many minutes, how many, blah, 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 you know, and I'm like, I think I'm ready to go to the hospital. I think I'm ready to go. And she's like, mm. you know, so we were like up all night and she goes, why don't you just go? lie down on the bed for a little while. I, so she knew like, because my, my contractions were like kind of all over, they yeah. were, hadn't hit a certain rapidity. And so it's now Thanksgiving morning, you know, Thursday morning at five Dory and my husband and I were all lying on the queen size bed and my labor completely stops, just stops. And so she's like, okay, you know, I'm going to go home call me if it starts up again. So 
She's like, just walk around, just wait, you know. So I was ready to go to the hospital around five in the morning on November 23rd. And then and she talked me out of it. She really talked me out of it, which was great. And so then the whole rest of the next day, I just kind of hung out, walked around. But I didn't want to go to Thanksgiving dinner at my mom's because I just had that whole, like, I don't want to be far from home feeling that you get. And then around eight o'clock that night, the contraction started again. You know, pretty rapid. I called Dory came and I basically labored in my living room with her for I don't know maybe three hours so does Uh, your water break at this point or no no water breaking okay Okay. (laughs) because that's a funny story so so she's giving me massages and and she said to me this amazing thing she said okay Alina what are you visualizing right now like when you're in when you when the contractions are coming and so I used to live in Southern California so I, I was like oh I'm I'm imagining like you know diving under the wave yeah. Right. You know how like the waves coming at you nope. and you dive under it and it goes. Up. And so I'm like in my mind, every contraction, I'm just diving under the wave. And she said, I hate to tell you this, <laughs> but in order for your labor to advance, you have to stop diving under the wave. You have to let the wave come through you. And I was like, oh, you know, and so that whole idea of the mind body connection told me that like, I was actually keeping myself from progressing. Yeah. My brain was like, I was saving myself. I was keeping my cervix from opening through my own like Jedi mind tricks. (laughs) So, but the way she put it was like, it just, I got it, you know? And so then the next contractions that came, I didn't dive, you know, and I sort of like let that power come through. You know, and, and so was, what's the, what's the visual now? Are you getting hit by the wave? Yeah, or carry yeah. Or something? it was weird. You know, it felt like the power went, came up from below the earth and like straight through me, like okay. straight up my middle and like opened my cervix, you know, and, and she, and Dory said, I've never seen anybody turn labor around that fast. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I know it was super amazing. So next thing you know, she's like, Oh, we better get to the hospital. Right. So I'm in the backseat of the car and on all fours. And I'm just like moaning, you know, and just like, it was really kind of fun, you know, like it was just like really letting it all hang out, you know, Wait, just, how long a drive is this? Are we, are we in so traffic? Like 20 minutes. No one is okay. and it's, it's like 10 or 11 at night in the city. So, and it was Thanksgiving night. So yeah. there was like no traffic. So I'm moaning and we're going down Lakeshore drive. And my husband, <laughs> my husband just like flooring it. And then we get to Northwestern and I'm, and I'm just like, you know what I loved about it was like, I had no modesty. Yeah. I loved that. I was just like, I don't care. I'm moaning. I don't care. Like whatever. And so we get to triage and they're like, you're nine centimeters. Oh my God. Uh-huh. Oh my God. <laughs> so they put me on the gurney or whatever. We reel into the elevator. Wait, let me ask a question here. <laughs> are you, are you sensing that the waves are getting higher or whatever the, whatever the image is? I don't know what the heck, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what I was. I was just like, I was like very mammalian. Let's just say I was very mammalian. Yeah. I was totally in my animal body. So then we, they wheel me into the elevator and my water breaks <laughs> all over the elevator. <laughs> and I was kind of like, take that, you know? <laughs> I'm going to end this episode right here. 
with Eileen very much in labor, with her husband newly surrounded by amniotic fluid, both of them in the elevator. Next Friday, the 21st, we'll air the rest of our conversation. It's impossible to listen to Eileen's story and Dr. Kute's experience and not be awed by the complexity of the project of growing another person. One other statistic I wanted to add from Dr. Kute's 2020 paper in Current Opinion in Obstetrics and Gynecology that blew me away is the following, and I quote, he writes, it's appropriate to remember that human reproduction is an extremely inefficient process. Approximately 70% of human conceptions never achieve viability. Here he's talking about eggs and nearly 50% spontaneously fade before ever being noticed. Spontaneous miscarriage is ultimately the most common complication of pregnancy. So I'll leave you with that statistic. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with the rest of Eileen's story.